Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert. Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we talk about God's good news for imperfect people. This is season one, episode 21 in our journey through the Gospel of John. So we're in the second half of chapter seven, if you want to read along today. These last few chapters have been about some very basic issues uh, concerning the person and the work of Jesus and the authority by which he claimed to be God's Messiah, God in the flesh. In one sense, I think it's confusing sometimes that the word Christ gets attached to the name of Jesus without any translation because it makes it seem as though, you know, Christ is Jesus's last name. No, his last name would have been something like Bar-Joseph, which means son of Joseph in Hebrew. Exactly how Larson means son of Lars in Danish. Christ is the Greek word, which means the same thing as Messiah in Hebrew. Both mean the anointed one. So both Messiah and Christ are titles for Jesus and not really part of his name. The two words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. And every time someone connects the word Messiah or Christ to the name of Jesus, they're making a statement about his identity as the divine son of God which is the crux of the debate that we see going on in today's scripture as we continue to kind of eavesdrop on what's going on in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, let's hear John chapter 7, starting with verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they were trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but... No one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to, to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And on hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees and asked them, "Why didn't who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? 
No one who ever spoke this way, this man does, the, blo- the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. What has always impressed me about this scene is the boldness and the courage of Jesus. John has already described the rising tide of hostility and opposition toward him. The threats of murder, the rumors, the -the behind-the-scenes intrigue, as the authorities spin their conspiracy webs to try and trap Jesus with their clever questions. There were already factions who wanted him dead, supposedly for blasphemy, but probably more so because he challenged their authority, and they were threatened by Jesus' ability to draw a crowd. Yet in the midst of all this, Jesus openly preaches in the courts of the temple and seemingly challenges the authorities to do anything about it. And people recognize how out there Jesus is, right in public, on the temple grounds. His boldness and courage are so impressive that many of the people wonder if the authorities have not secretly believed in him and recognized that he was the Messiah. But others remind them that of this uh, legend that kind of grew up around the Old Testament teachings about the Messiah. And one of those legends was that the Messiah would just suddenly appear, just kind of like a puff of smoke. He's just there, and no one would know where he came from. There's a verse in that uh, in the last book of the Old Testament that says God's messenger, uh, God's Messiah, would suddenly appear in his temple. That's Malachi 3, verse 1. The rabbis, rabbis took that verse to mean that then no one would know anything about his background. He'd just be a total enigma. So these people are saying, how could this be the Messiah? We know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth in Galilee. He cannot be the Messiah. So there was a lot of confusion in the minds of people as to how the Messiah would appear and how much they should believe about Jesus. Of course, like he always does, Jesus just ignores these mistaken concepts and this uh, superficial argument about him and goes right to the heart of the problem and sticks his foot in it again by saying in verse 28, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. There should really be a question mark at the end of the sentence in verse 28 because it's written as a rhetorical question. And so Jesus has an edge in his voice as he speaks. And we've seen that before. You know, he's not all puppy dogs and rainbows. So here again, he cuts right through all the argument to get to the real issue. Do you really know me? He asks. No, no, you do not. For my true origin is not Nazareth. You see, they did not even know about how he had been born in Bethlehem, much less his relationship with the father. They didn't, he did, they didn't know his earthly parents had gone to Bethlehem for the mandatory census by King Herod. So they didn't know anything about the Christmas story. They only knew where he grew up, and that was in Nazareth. Jesus has been saying all along, I'm the true bread sent down from heaven. I came from God. I know him, but you do not, because if you did know him, you would know that I came from him. That's back in chapter 6, verse 32. This is our uh, Jesus's argument all the way through this chapter. If you knew the Father, you would know me, 
Simple as that. But since you don't recognize me as the Messiah, that also shows that you don't know the Father either. The reverse is true. So there was an uproar about this. It reminds me there was an uproar a number of years ago when a Southern Baptist pastor declared openly that God does not hear the prayers of Jews. Boy, did that set off a lot of fireworks. Caused a tremendous controversy, and rightly so, because I think that's a misunderstanding or a misstatement of the teaching of scriptures. God does hear the prayers of Jews as he hears the prayers of everyone who prays sincerely from the heart. And the last thing you would ever want to say to anybody of any faith today is to accuse them of not knowing God. That is just not our place at all. It's not up to us to judge anyone else's relationship with the Father, because that's above our pay grade. But Jesus, he doesn't have that problem. And he's the one who would know, right? So we never need to diminish anyone else's faith. We don't. All we need to do is to live out our own faith and let people interact with what Scripture teaches. We need Christ to move in their hearts and let Scripture be the mechanism of, correct, of correction. But notice the reaction of the leaders who were listening to Jesus. What Jesus said, it was like throwing gas on a fire. To say to these, you know, supposed religious leaders of the nation, you don't know God, that is one cold slap in the face. Yet Jesus understands that, and he says it deliberately, fully knowing what their, their reaction was going to be. Why would he do this? Well, when you read this account, I hope you ask yourself questions like that, because they help us to kind of dig around and get at what is happening. Is Jesus just a troublemaker who delights in taunting these people? Does he take pleasure in overturning their apple cart, so to speak, and forcing them to hear things that they don't want to hear? Does he just like to cause trouble? And the answer, of course, has to be no. I mean, he's not that kind of person. He's not just a provocateur, a revolutionary out to overthrow the system, though many social activists today try to paint him to be like that. No, rather, Jesus is a truth teller in a world of self-delusion a truth teller in a world of self-delusion where people follow after lies and fantasies. In the environment Jesus is in, the very epitome of truth, and so he, so it's inevitable that he's going to be kind of a lightning rod that attracts all the venom and animus that's out there. There's an interesting phrase that's used several times in the letters of the New Testament. It goes like this. It says, as the truth is in Jesus, dot, dot, dot. That's Ephesians 4.21, for example. Jesus is someone who deals with life exactly the way it is. He doesn't dress it up or overbalance one aspect against another. But there's no fluff, no spin in how he talks. He tells it just the way it is. He sees absolutely clearly and truly what is there and what he says he sees, or what he sees he says. This is what distresses people. We're not even remotely aware of how much our lives are spent believing lies fantasies and false philosophies that are without foundation in fact. How much of our lives is influenced not just by fake news, but fake values, fake outrage, fake injury, fake everything. But Jesus understands and he speaks the truth. And when he does so, he upsets people because we'd rather believe pleasant, enjoyable lies, at least pleasant and enjoyable in the short term. And that's just so true today. People hide themselves in the safety of their delusions, like getting wrapped up in a kind of like a cultural bubble wrap. So the reaction to Jesus's words is predictable. Verse 30, at this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will this man, will they, will he perform more signs than this man? So that's an accurate description of what always happens when the good news about Jesus is preached. If the gospel is truly preached, a twofold reaction will always result. First, some people are going to be very upset and angry. This is what the Apostle Paul also found to be true. Second Corinthians, he wrote that as he went about preaching, he found two reactions. To some, his preaching was the aroma of death unto death. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16. Apart from God, people were already dying. They were perishing. And what he said to them only upset them even more because it challenged their concepts about themselves and about life. And it forced them either to change or go on the way that they were. And they chose to continue as they were and were led further into darkness. And that's going on all around us today as people reject the truth and follow after false ideas. But then there's the other reaction, as John records. Many believed. Many saw this good news as an aroma of life unto life, which is the phrase Paul also uses in 2 Corinthians 2. Here was someone who was at last stripping away all the illusions, taking down the facades and removing the mist, making people see and understand who they really were, but also how much God loved them and how much God wanted to change and heal and restore. Friends, the gospel will always cause division. There is something the church, this is something the church in our day is, is really trying to avoid. We, we don't like conflict. We want our culture to like us as though that's the key to successful evangelism, to be likable, to be nice, to be relevant by adopting the same kind of standards as the world around us. I don't believe that's what Jesus meant when he used those very kind of tough words in the 12th chapter of Luke. He said, do you think that I came to send peace on the earth? No, I came to send fire. I came to send a sword. I came to set people at enmity with one another so that your enemies will be those of your own household, fathers against children and family member against family member. That's Luke 12, 51. That's a hard teaching. That's an unpleasant reality. But that is the nature of truth. When you believe it and obey it, it will create division at times. You don't want to seek to cause division, not intentionally. That's not what Jesus is saying. But don't be surprised if conflict occurs. Okay, so notice Jesus' reaction. He just keeps right on preaching. Verses 32. I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. And you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus clearly perceived that his time was not yet, and that meant no one could touch him or stop him until the Father allowed it to happen. It's the only explanation we can give for these bold words of Jesus. He's aware of the unseen protective hand of God the Father. God's plan for our salvation, it's not going to be frustrated, disrupted, or rushed by the opposition or even by Jesus' supporters. All through the scriptures and also through the life of the church, you can see evidence and example of this kind of thing about God's timing. He's never late and he's never early and he's never rushed. In the book of Acts, we read that when the Apostle Paul first preached in Corinth, he was afraid because an angry opposition developed towards him. And Jesus appeared to him and told him not to fear because nobody would hurt him. That's Acts 18 verse 9. God was invisibly protecting his messenger. 
Jesus senses the same kind of protection. He is confident that no one can touch him. And so he continues his ministry with the awareness that all the opposition against him could go no further than God's mighty hand would permit. Now, this should greatly encourage Christian witness today. If we're walking in the will of God and in the strength of God, we can be confident that nothing can happen to us except what God allows. And when he allows it, it's the right time for it to happen. This is one of the great lessons of the Christian life. You know, it kind of explains why Daniel got comfortable in the lion's den. Can you imagine him ordering a lion to lie down so we could make him uh, his pillow? Daniel knew that God had shut the mouths of the lions and they would not hurt him. But it also means there will be times when God allows his children to suffer for the gospel, when that time will come. It came for Jesus, a time when it was time for him to suffer. And so the history of the Christian church is the history of Christian martyrs. It's a long and bloody and violent story. And historically, often the gospel was only advanced because of the sacrifice of Christians who were willing to face torture and even death for Christ. It's happening today around the world in many places, Burma, Iran, including Ukraine now. We should be praying for those folks that they would have the power of Christ in them to face whatever happens. And we need to pray for ourselves because there may be times when God withdraws his protecting hand over our lives and leads us into areas where we would rather not go. And this is why we should never make light of the sense of God's protection or presume that we can take advantage of God's protection. Uh, years ago, there was a story about a famous radio preacher. Uh, someone called in and said, I've been studying the Bible and I believe I'm absolutely safe in God's hand. No matter what I do or how dangerous it may be, He's going to protect me. If I stepped out into the busy street against the red light, I would be perfectly safe if my time had not yet come. And the radio preacher replied, If you're foolish enough to step out into traffic against a red light at the rush hour, brother, your time has come. You know, we've got to remember that even the Lord teaches through the temptation in the wilderness that we are not to tempt or test God. If we are fulfilling his will, and doing what he sends us to do, we can be confident that we are kept by his angelic presence, kept safe until God's moment comes. So look at Jesus's boldness here. He even announces what he's going to do. He gives out his itinerary, he says, I'm going to be with you just a while longer, and then I'll go away to him who sent me and you'll seek for me, but you will not find me. And that just kind of throws his hearers into confusion. What is he talking about, they say? Is he going to leave the country? Is he going to go away to the Jews in foreign lands? Is he going to start preaching to the Gentiles? Really, for the very first time, in kind of as these strange cryptic words, Jesus hints at the process by which all that he has promised will be fulfilled. This next paragraph is often taken to be sort of a parenthesis, but it's really not. It's really the answer to the question, how is he going to do this? What does he mean, I'm going away and you can't find me. So he gives his answer, I think, in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those he believed who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, remember, John is writing this gospel on our side of the day of Pentecost. 
After that wonderful day when the Spirit was given in great power and came into the hearts of believers to do his work in making Jesus visible to the inner eye of the soul. It's not a joke when people say that they have talked with Jesus or that they follow Jesus or that Jesus comforts them or that Jesus strengthens them. It is a genuine experience in which Jesus himself is really present, but by means of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the mediator. But when Jesus was yet on earth, the Spirit had not been given in that way. The Spirit of God is always present everywhere in the world. He was present before the day of Pentecost as well as afterward, but not in this fuller sense. He was not performing this ministry of making Jesus known or real, at least not as fully as he's been doing since the day of Pentecost. So for the first time, we have our Lord's hint of how this is all going to be accomplished. I must leave. I'm going back to him who sent me. But when I do, I'll send you the Spirit. Later on in the gospel, Jesus enlarges upon this in that great upper room discourse found in chapters 13 through 17. So we'll come back to the role of the Holy Spirit. But now he teaches by means of a beautiful symbol. You see, each day during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the chief priests would lead a procession down through the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam, which uh, means scent or the scent, the one scent. Out of the waters of that pool, he would fill a golden pitcher and carry it back to the temple and then pour it out over the altar to remind the people of the days in the barren wilderness when God gave them water out of a rock. Then the people would shout, wave palm branches, rejoice and praise God. But on the great day, the last day, there was no ceremony because this was a day that had been added to the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was not part of the Old Testament tradition. It was on this day that Jesus seized the opportunity to cry aloud, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, not by that water drawn from the pool and poured over the altar. Now, now it comes through me. He's saying, I am the rock. I'm the very rock that those in the wilderness drank from. These words are sort of confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, where it says about the Israelites, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 4. So there in the wilderness, God was teaching the same truth that he's teaching in this passage and for us today, that Jesus is the rock from which all people are invited to drink and satisfy the thirst of their hearts. Notice Jesus doesn't limit the word thirst. He just says simply, if anyone thirsts. People thirst for many different things. Some are thirsting for significance. They want to feel like they're important, that they belong, that they're somebody. People whom society overlooks, those who are not wealthy or beautiful or have strong personalities, they may thirst to be regarded as important. To those, Jesus says, if you thirst, come to me. You will find the very significance you're seeking. Some people are looking for power or the ability to accomplish things. Jesus says to them, if that is what you want, come to me and drink of me. Listen to my words. Come into a relationship with me. Let me walk with you. Draw from my wisdom, from my strength, and from my presence, and it'll be yours. And your thirst for power will actually be satisfied. You know, physical thirst is one of the most powerful drives known to humanity. I mean, the sex drive can be contained. You can even deny satisfying hunger for weeks at a time. 
But one thing you can't leave unsatisfied for very long is thirst. You might know the, the rule of three. You can go three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. Thirst becomes a driving demon that takes over the whole of your life and makes you think of nothing else. This is what Jesus means. If you feel yourself driven, wanting something, restless, thirsty, longing for satisfaction, then his invitation is this. <clears throat> Come unto me and drink. And by means of the Spirit, spirit which I will give those who believe in me, I will satisfy that thirst. But notice how he will satisfy it. This is the most beautiful part about this. He doesn't say, if anybody comes to me and drink, I'll meet your needs. That's not really what he's saying. I mean, a lot of people think that's what Christianity is all about, that if you come to Jesus, he's just going to take care of you. He'll satisfy you <clears throat> sort of apart from everybody else. This is sort of comes from the desires of, you know, the me generation that thinks purely in selfish terms of how they can have their own needs met. But Jesus isn't really saying that. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his heart, really out of his belly or his innermost being, his guts, out of that part of your inner life shall flow not just a river, but rivers of living water. What's he mean by that? The true sign of the Spirit is that you become a blessing to someone else. Someone else's help through you. Your concern is to reach out to someone else in need and to help them. When that happens, you will find that your own thirst is being, is being satisfied. You find deep satisfaction of the heart. It is the Spirit of grace doing what Jesus said would happen. Rivers of living water flowing through them to others to satisfy their need. Only when you truly drink of him do those kind of rivers begin to flow. John traces three results that follow these words of Jesus. First, we see again the same twofold division among his heroes in verse 40. <clears throat> On hearing this, his words, some people said, surely this man's a prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him on him. Then there is kind of a strange impotence among his enemies in verse 44. Some people wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. And to me, this is one of those kind of humorous or ironic uh, incidents in the Gospels. Can you imagine how these chief priests felt when they saw these guards whom they had appointed to go out and arrest Jesus return empty-handed. They were kind of cowed by Jesus's persona, these big burly guards. So they asked, where is he? The priest kind of demand to know. You knew where he was. Why didn't you bring him in? You can almost hear the response to, of the men kind of shuffling their feet. Well, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what happened, but as we were listening to him, we got so wrapped up in what he was saying that we just kind of forgot what we were supposed to do. We have to say this. We've never heard anybody speak like this guy. You know, do you know Jesus like that? Do you listen to his words and be awed by their power like these guards were? Do you think through what he's saying to you? Have you found yourself arrested, captivated by the one whom the guards sought to arrest? I hope so. I hope the gospels come alive for you in that way. 
I hope you'll read John's gospel for yourself. Don't just rely on what I say. Just personally interact with the gospel. Think about it. Meditate on what Jesus says and does and just chew on it. Make it your own. And I hope you'll be captivated by Jesus as they were. The third thing that resulted from Jesus's response was the bitter hatred of his enemies. You can kind of hear the anger and the contempt in their words, the pride and the pompous superiority in their attitude in verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Why do you listen to these common people? You know, do you hear the snobbishness and the contempt in these words? That's what creates such a barrier to believing in Jesus. It's just pride. It's just stupid pride. It keeps a lot of people from knowing him. So then Nicodemus speaks up. And we've already seen in chapter 3 that Nicodemus was the one who met secretly with Jesus at night. He's one of this crowd of Pharisees, but his heart wasn't like stone. His heart had been changed by Jesus, and so he offers a second opinion in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Nicodemus is in the minority. Have you ever been in a group like that where you think you might be the only believer and there's a conversation, maybe an ethical or moral conversation going on, and Man, is it hard to differentiate yourself and kind of stick your neck out there. Hard to put yourself on the line and just even to say, you know, can I offer another opinion? Because a lot of times they don't want to hear another opinion. But that's often the situation that we're placed in where you might think that you are the only person in the room who's really a follower of Jesus. And that's a test for you to know exactly how to respond. And so they respond with sarcasm too. Are you from Galilee? Look into it and you'll find out that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus raises a word of caution. He kind of uses their own laws against them. He says, be careful, you're about to take an impetuous action. It's going to end up in violating the very law that you claim to maintain. But their reaction is sarcastic. On the face of it, their response was also completely wrong. Three great prophets of the Old Testament had come from Galilee. Jonah clearly was one, Nahum and Hosea very likely were also from Galilee. And so they were just so mad about Jesus, they were forgetting their own history, or maybe they were revising their history, counting on the fact that the audience was composed in their minds of just uneducated country bumpkins who wouldn't know enough to challenge, you know, their superior brains. But the point, of course, is that they were sarcastic, pompous, cynical, calloused in their attitude, irrational even. And this is often the reaction of those who are disturbed by the words of Jesus. They're just going to go off and, and have even the most irrational reasoning to try and silence those who might support him. Well, there's a lot in this chapter, but I want to close this podcast not on the negative note where John leaves us, but with those gracious words of Jesus, if anyone thirsts, what a wonderful word that is, if anyone thirsts. Are you looking for more? Do you feel that way about life? Well, don't look for satisfaction and travel or business success or in new gadgets or in cars or houses or things. Those will never satisfy the thirst. Here is what. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and keep on drinking. 
as you listen to Jesus, as you draw upon the facts of his presence, as you lean on his grace, as you enjoy his love and acceptance, you'll find that he will change you. One of the signs of that change, as certain as tomorrow's sunrise, is that you'll begin to think about other people rather than just think about yourself. You'll reach out to the hurting around you, and when you do that, you'll find that your own heart is satisfied. Meaning, significance, power, companionship, all those come into your life because of your surrender to Jesus. And that's the promise of Jesus. From out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. I hope you can claim that this week. Have a good one.